Welcome to the Conversation of Money podcast. I'm your host, Peter Komalafe, and you've guessed it, this is where we talk about money. And it is my mission to empower you, to help you make the best financial decisions possible. Why? Because money is a tool, life is for living. Let's go. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to the Conversation of Money podcast. Right, so I'm recording this on Saturday evening because tomorrow is Sunday and we will be playing the Euro finals. And to be honest, I don't want to be recording podcasts or doing anything work-related tomorrow evening because I do plan on watching the final. I've got some videos to shoot during the day, um, but that will be the only thing that I'm going to do. My attention is going to be fully focused on the finals. Now, fingers crossed, by the time you hear this on Sunday morning, England are European champions. Fingers crossed. I'm hopeful. I am I'm very, very optimistic, but who knows what's going to happen. But I think regardless of the outcome, Gareth and the boys can be absolutely proud of what they've achieved in getting us to our first major final in 55 years. I mean, it's it's something special. It really, really is. So with that out of the way, let's talk about the topic for today. Now, this topic comes as a result of an interaction that I had with somebody probably about two weeks ago now on a discovery call for some coaching. And this may sound like an obvious thing. However, I've, I've said a couple of times, because I, I do firmly believe, and it's my observation, that whilst we are trying to make sound financial decisions, oftentimes our financial decisions are not based on logic or sound rationale. So what tends to happen is we get sold the idea of something or we get sold the dream of something. And then our critical thinking just goes out the window because we're fixated on the potential returns or the potential positive gain that we can get by taking said action. And you know what? There is a tactic that has been deployed on social media now for a while, um, which I absolutely detest. It's reverse psychology and it's designed to prey on people who have the better side of their critical thinking telling them, no, no, don't do it. And they use this line to basically counteract that and make you feel even more inept because you don't understand or completely grasp the, I'm going to say this in inverted commas, opportunity they're offering you. Although your instinct identifies this opportunity as a risk or as something that may be too good to be true. And that trick is this old line of, well, the reason why people are poor is because they don't take risks. They don't take advantage of opportunities. They think too long. They say no to good opportunities when they come along and therefore you will always remain poor. They use this as a psychological trigger to get you to stop thinking critically and stop listening to your inner voice. Stop listening to your inner intuition because they know that most people are susceptible to this tactic. Now, I've seen in action, I recognize it myself because obviously I've been in the industry for quite some time now. However, it isn't easy for you to spot if you're actually in this thing. In the moment, it could be very, very difficult. 
So with that said, I want to talk about what not to do when you are saving for a deposit for your first home. As I said, this may sound fairly obvious, but I think it's an important conversation to have. And what I will do is maybe give you some parameters, some ideas of maybe some things to consider if you are indeed saving for your first home and you're trying to get your deposit together. So I had a discovery call about a week and a half, maybe two weeks ago now. And the discovery call was to see if I could help with a situation that this this client had found herself in, where she was in the process of, of applying for a mortgage. She had seen a mortgage um, advisor. They were just about to go to the agreement in principle phase. Now, for those of you who don't know, the agreement in principle phase is where you approach the bank and they give you kind of an indication that they are willing to lend you X amount of money for a house purchase. So that means that you can then go ahead and put your, put down your deposit and press the button on your home purchase. Now, she was at that advanced stage. And the conversation that we had stemmed in the unfortunate situation of the deposit. Now, this is was, this was the situation. She needed X amount of deposit for the house and she had part of that money available. However, she invested a portion of her money into crypto under the assumption that crypto had performed so well this year that it may give her an additional 500 pounds or a thousand pounds in profit. So that can go to a lot of things when you're buying a house. It could be a new sofa. It could be a whole host of things, right? You can do your decoration on a thousand pounds. You can get a lot done with a thousand pounds, but that that was what she was hoping for. Speculating on bit on, on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies to give her that bumper. Now, if you're following the crypto market, then obviously you'll know that everything's been very, very um, volatile, at least for the last month now. And she found herself in a situation where she had lost some money. I believe it was between five and eight thousand pounds. And my initial conversation, my what well, my initial thoughts when she was explaining this was, oh no, 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 please no. Um, but we are where we are now, and so these kind of those kind of conversations for me are very difficult to navigate because I immediately know that I have to deliver bad news, particularly because of the situation that she was in, where you know you've got the agreement in principle, and by the way, because she had lost five to eight thousand pounds in the crypto market. That meant that she now didn't have an, have enough money for the deposit, which meant that actually the mortgage was more likely to fall through. So there were two there were two options really. Um, there op- there was one option to stay in the market, see if it recovered over a period of time. Over the last couple of weeks, it hasn't. I think it's may have gone up just a little bit. I haven't really tracked Bitcoin or anything like that over the last couple of weeks since we spoke. So she may have recovered a little bit, not not anywhere near the five to eight thousand pounds that she has already lost. Or the other option was to cut her losses, to cash it in and try and see if she could secure monies elsewhere from family, friends or in whatever way possible in order to secure the mortgage. Because in this particular example and scenario, the prize here is not the returns on the crypto investment. The prize here is the new house. You're buying a house for the kids, for the family it's your roof, it's your asset, it's your security, right? So the prize isn't trying to recover the five to eight thousand pounds that you've lost because the crypto markets have been unpredictable as they always are. 
the prize here is trying to secure the house. And so my my guidance to her was cut your losses because unfortunately, where the crypto markets are so volatile, we have no idea what is going to happen. Bitcoin might soar by 50%. One day, it might drop another 20, 10% tomorrow. We have no idea what's going to happen. And then we start getting into the conversation around risk and expectations and whether the risk of staying in and the possibility that it might recover so that you can regain, you know, a thousand pounds or 2000 pounds is worth the risk of losing the house because you're now at the agreement in principle phase and you need your deposit in order to see that process through. And this is really the lesson that I wanted to share this today, this week on the podcast is that the one thing you should not do when you're looking to purchase a house and you're looking to save for your deposit is put your money into investments over the short term. Okay. I'm just going to repeat this again. So it's not confused. Don't put your money into investments, stock market, cryptocurrencies, or anything like that over the short term. And when I say short term, you need the money in under a year, even under two years, even under three years, because if you're investing, really, you need at least a minimum of three year timeline horizon, right? You, you need to have the money in there for three years, at least in order to give yourself the best chance of, of a return. And even at three years, it's a very, very short time span. And I know that that sounds, it sounds like common sense, right? I mean, I'm sure people are listening to this and being, yeah, yeah, that makes sense, Pete. Well, why would you do that? But again, I think that where we find ourselves now in social media, we find ourselves in this um, environment where there is so much, so much FUD and so much hyperbole out there about stock market returns, crypto returns, and all of this wonderful uh, reward that you can, you can get from being a smart investor that again, we lose our critical thinking. We lose the the rational thought that should take over when we start assessing these kind of things. I think assessing the situation goes out the window in its entirety because we get blindsided by, yeah, actually that thousand pounds could be another, uh, you know, decoration to another room. It could get me this, it could get me that. That's all we're thinking about. We're not thinking rationally and assessing the situation for what it is. And this is where, you know, I talk about this all the time, understanding how risk when it comes to investing actually works. You know, the stock market is one thing. You've got to manage risk there. And indeed you can. Uh, I talk a lot about that on my course. You can manage your risk within the stock market. There are ways that you can go about doing that. Crypto is very, very different. Yes, you can manage risk still. If you have a big enough crypto portfolio, you go for maybe some of the more established coins versus some of the mean coins that are out there. You maybe have a look at stable coins and utilization of those if you can. However, cryptocurrencies are way more volatile than the traditional stock markets. And so when you're going into these kind of situations, you have to have your analysis hat on around, right, What what's the risk of me doing this? What do I stand to lose if this doesn't go right? And also, you know, you do have to consider what you stand to gain, but what does the, the, 
the possible losses outweigh the benefits of a possible gain. That's always got to be the question that you ask yourself when you invest in, in anything, not just crypto, not just stocks, property as well, gold, whatever it is that you're investing in, even a business. Does the risk of a possible loss outweigh the benefits of a possible gain? If those factors are tilted in the negative where actually you stand to lose way more because of volatility and the uncertainties of a market and all of the other factors that may influence markets and cryptocurrency prices and so on and so forth if if the if the loss the the risk of loss outweighs the benefits then you know from a pragmatic point of view it isn't something that anyone should go into unless you are willing to accept that risk and particularly when you look at it in this context where you are looking to save for a house. And I think sometimes we have to anchor ourselves in what the price actually is. If you're looking to purchase a property, yes, I know property prices go up. Property prices have gone up quite considerably over the last few years. I mean, even in the last year or so, property prices have gone up even with COVID. However, when you're looking to buy your house, the house is the prize. And I know that it's very, very um, easy to fall into the mindset of, I want to get there as quickly as possible. I mean, who doesn't? I'm shooting some videos at the moment for my collaboration with uh, Eureka, who I'm now part of. I'm part of that team at Eureka. And we've been looking at some data and we know that data tells us that the average person saves for nine years to achieve their deposit on an, at an average rate of 15% of their wages. Now, the average salary here in the UK is about £31,000. So it's around about £400-ish, roughly a month. People are, are, are saving for, are using to save for a house deposit in most cases on average, according to the data. But it's taken them nine years to be able to do that. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a decade. That's a very long time. Property prices can move. And so I can see the attraction of, okay, let's put some money into something where I might get a little bit of extra help in order to help me get to the house deposit a bit quicker. So I can actually get on the property ladder and enjoy some of this property capital appreciation because that's the whole reason why we're buying it, right? Not only is it a roof over our head, it's an asset that appreciates in value over time. So it, it makes logical sense that people want to fast track that as much as possible. But what I'm trying to get, get at here, guys, is do not let social media or people use reverse psychology on you and all of these psych NLP tricks or psychological tricks to get you to forget about the critical thinking that is required when you're going into any decision like this. Please please make sure that you are thinking critically and that you are doing the analysis that is required. Treat it like a business. If you're, if you're not going to get your money back and it doesn't stack up as a good investment, you should never do it. Now, I've thrown around some like stats from um, some data that we're looking at at the moment at Eureka, because um, one of the things that we do at Eureka is we, we firmly have a look at how we can help people achieve their goals. And one of the goals is obviously getting on the property ladder. So as we've already mentioned here, that 
the average person, well, according to the data, the average person saves for nine years to get on the property ladder at a rate of about 15% of their of their salary, basically. Now, nine years is a very long time. It's almost a decade. So at Eureka, one of the things that we're looking at is how can we get people to get there a little bit faster, but by using traditional means and actually looking at investing in, in the traditional manner where we use time and time-based portfolios, which is a relatively new concept. But the idea is with a time-based portfolio, you're invested for a select period of time and the risk element is already calculated for you within that and accounted for. And what we try to do is we use data to try and decide where are you going to have the most and the strongest statistical probability of meeting your target over your investment period. I'll leave a link in the show notes, go and check us out because we've got some videos coming out uh, this week, actually on Tuesday. So tomorrow um, that you can have a look at. If you want to follow me on YouTube, go and have a look at that video and, and just see if it makes sense to you and play around with our tomorrow builder. Because I think one thing that we do very, very differently is number one, the time-based portfolios, but we also only charge a flat monthly fee. So it's five pounds per month. We don't charge a percentage fee. When you combine those two things together, it, 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 saves you so much time and gives you so much extra money because you're not, number one, paying a percentage fee for the amount that you have invested over your investment period. So I'll leave a link, go and check out uh, the Tomorrow World. So one thing you should never do is invest your deposit money over the short term. You need at least three years. Now, one of the things that I think is also very important to mention here, okay, guys, is look, you there is help available that you have access to and you are entitled to, okay? And I, I think it's really important not to feel as though you're a failure or you shouldn't be using what is available to you. And I'm talking about things like the lifetime ICES, the help to buy schemes, all those kind of things. Yes, obviously you need to sit down and analyze whether the various options available are right for you because let's let's be honest sometimes these these options are not right for everyone i'm going to give you a prime example so one of the things that people often miss with the help to buy scheme which is where you can put in a 10% deposit and the government will basically underwrite the, uh, a 20% uh, loan on the property for you so the extra 20% deposit basically comes from the government now that is a great scheme because it has helped so many people get on the property ladder sooner. However, there's a couple of things that people don't often uh, realize when they go into things like help to buy. The first one is, well, actually, you know what? They're giving you 20% of the property, but actually they also will have 20% of your sale price. So if your property goes up, you know, 50%, you're giving away extra money to the government. Now, many people feel that that is fair. And to be honest, it is. It's the, it's the bargain that you that you strike. It's the deal that you strike, right? They lend you money, you get the property ladder. They Because they help you get on the property ladder, they get to partake in the property capital appreciation. That's only fair. It's That's a business arrangement, right? But whilst that is fine in its own right, that still takes people by surprise when they get to the point where either they need to sell and they start looking at, okay, uh, I need to pay back how much now? The number looks bigger. And also with the help to buy scheme, it's not like you can pay this thing off in like, you know, you get you get it interest free for five years, right? So you're paying no interest at all for five years. But what people often miss is that if you're not financially regimented, so you don't run a tight budget, 
what tends to happen, and this happens to a lot of people that I've that I've spoken to, is within those five years, they've not really made a plan to actually pay back that capital amount. And to be honest, the scheme doesn't make it easy for you to pay it back. So you can either pay it back in two lump sums or one lump sum. You can't pay it back on a monthly basis. So it would make complete sense, but it's counterintuitive to the deal that you strike. If you could pay this, this loan off on a monthly basis, but they won't allow you to do that. You could either have it in two lump sums or one lump sum, and that is it. The other thing that a lot of people don't tend to realize when it, we talk about the help to buy scheme specifically is that you know, most people who buy properties together, and I'm talking specifically about couples here, many of them will have family on the cards at some point in the near future. And that may be two, three years. I know some people that moved into the same neighborhood that I that I live in at the moment who have had babies since they moved into their properties. Actually, two of the three uh, that we met who moved in at the same time have now had kids. And what that often means is that, you know, the partner misses, either stays at home to look after the child. And sometimes in the modern world, the man will, will tend to do that. But the impact of that is that, well, actually, you're taking a pay cut of sorts in some way, shape or form. There's a hit on the household income. And, you know, for kids, many people want to be at home with their kids, you know, particularly to see those early years of development. Work becomes almost a secondary thing because you have the joy of a new member of your family there that you want to be there for and you want to watch grow up. And for many people, the dynamic of returning to work actually changes. The priorities tend to change. And when you've gone into a help to buy mortgage, that means that you may have bought over and above what you could technically afford on one income now that obviously a baby is here, because obviously you did this before the baby arrived and there were two incomes that you've done this calculation on. People fall into financial hardship, start to struggle to be able to make ends meet and therefore find themselves going back to work when they don't really want to go back to work or perhaps taking jobs that they don't necessarily want to do because now the necessity is I've got a baby and I've got to keep the roof over the head, I've got to pay the bills, so on and so forth. So those are just a couple of things around the help to buy scheme that I think people often miss in my experience from being in the industry and obviously arranging mortgages for people and speaking to a lot of mortgage advisors. You know, this is a very solid and very important conversation to be having with people. So it's, again, when you're, whenever you're entering into any financial transaction, any at all, and you know, we can broaden this out so it's not just about investing specifically. Whenever you're walking into any financial transaction, you have to think about things pragmatically. You have to be analytical in your thinking. Is this sustainable? Is this, is this realistic? Is it pragmatic? Are there holes in this plan? Are there holes in this narrative that you're being fed? And, you know, always, always trust your instinct. And I know that social media is a is an all-encompassing space that we all have to, it feels like, endure these days because social media will tell you that you need to go for the biggest house. Social media will tell you that you need to have the 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 nicest furniture and you know all of these expectations and maybe even aspirations that you get from social media. But I want to tell you this, there is nothing wrong with, you know, not doing that one thing or following that narrative because actually from a pragmatic point of view, it doesn't make sense. There is nothing wrong with that. And people may, many people will say, you know, you need to have a massive house. I mean, 
when I bought my house in Shropshire, there are only two of us, by the way, but we still got a four bedroom house. I was looking at a five bedroom house and I was like, okay, I can have a games room. And we start to have all of these, these ideas of, oh my God, this could be absolutely amazing. But to take that extra bedroom meant an additional 50,000 pounds. There were only two of us. And I had to have an honest conversation with myself and think, well, who is this extra room for? And who's actually going to be using it? I'll have a games room. Okay, fine. But there's two of us. We already have two spare rooms as it is. One of them is now my partner's office. I've got an office downstairs. So we've now got one spare room. And our, our property is over three floors. We've got one spare room now. We hardly have guests. If we had a five-bedroom house, I would have a property that cost me £50,000 more, X amount extra on the mortgage, and no, what, two, two spare bedrooms doing what exactly? And it's not as though we're going to be in a position where we're going to rent out a room. That's We like our privacy. We like uh, the way we, we live. We don't necessarily want a stranger in the house as such. So it wasn't ever something that we were going to do. And in that conversation with myself, I had to really kind of challenge why I wanted a big house. Was it? And, and to be honest, it was because it felt as though that was the right thing to do. All my colleagues had, you know, at the time in Canary Wharf, five, six bedroom houses. So I had to aim for the five bedroom house. The four bedroom house was just out of the question completely. And I had to have a really honest conversation with myself. And you know what? I'm thankful for it because the money, that extra £50,000 and those mortgage payments, yes, the property would have appreciated in value. However, it would have been less money that I could have, you know, put into the stock market. It would have been less money that I could have used to go on holiday and actually enjoy life. Again, money is a tool. Life is for living. So, you know, I'm talking about what not to do when you're saving for your deposit. If I have to round this up, look, do not invest your your home deposit if you're, if you're looking at this at a short-term basis. Between one and three years, do not invest it. You've got lifetime ISAs that are there where you're going to get, you're going to get a bonus from the government anyway. That is a sufficient enough return. It's money for nothing. So your lifetime ISAs will allow you to save £4,000 per year. You're going to get £1,000 from the government. That is a good enough return if your trajectory towards Buying a house is three years. If you're looking at three years plus, and let's just say you're looking at four years, five years, six years, seven years, then absolutely have a look at the stock market. But then if you're going down the traditional route, you need to understand how the risk element actually works and how you can build a portfolio or at least use a provider that will build a portfolio that is risk appropriate for you. At Eureka, what we do is we do time-based portfolios. So we have investment portfolios specifically for your time horizon. So if it is five years, we have a time-based portfolio for five years specifically. And we consider all of the risk and look at, look at market history over the last 20 to 40 years to see where statistically you have the best likelihood of returns. And we invest it accordingly and we charge a flat monthly rate. That makes us very, very different, very, very unique. Again, just go and check us out. I'll leave a link in the show notes. If you're going with traditional uh, robo-advisors, yes, look at what offering they have, look at their fee structure, make sure that you're comfortable with the approach, but do not invest your deposit money over a short period of time. Also, just be pragmatic, be analytical. Don't be sold a dream. Look, one of my biggest frustrations is social media. I've said it so many times here. I feel as though I'm a broken record. I think 
regulations, there was some great stuff coming out from Google now to say that financial pro- uh, promotions on, on Google, YouTube, and all that kind of stuff, they will now be more stringently reviewed before they actually go live. So it has to be from a registered company that is verifiable with, you have to go through ID checks. This is good, good news. So I hope that this, uh, this environment of constant financial promotion, selling all this gunk and all this bile, all of this stuff will come to an end fairly soon, but we still have some way to go. And in the meantime, you are going to have to have your smarts about you because there is so much stuff, particularly in the crypto space that frankly, it scares me. And I'm, I'm, I'm constantly having to battle making negative content, negative videos about things because I just, I'm naturally a positive person. My big motto is a, is a saying from a friend of mine, life is about radiators and drain pipes. You know, radiators are people and things that are positive. They're a positive influence. They make you want to be better. They make you want to do great things. The radiators are just the opposite to that. They're just this bile, this gunk, this whole negativity that will ruin your mood and just make you negative. I have no time for radiators. I've got I've got no time for drain pipes, sorry. I've got all the time for radiators and therefore the content I consume, the people that I interact with, most of it, 99% of it is positive. I don't have time for drain pipes. And if this, this is, might be a lesson for this episode as well, for you to consider, take away with you, I don't know. But I have to constantly fight myself to not make negative content because that negativity and highlighting negativity begets negativity, particularly on social media. And that means that then I'm inviting drain pipes into my space, which makes me feel crap about myself and makes me question what I'm doing, so on and so forth. So guys, just, you know, have your wits about you. Try and resist, you know, all of this stuff that you're seeing on social media. Think critically, keep your wits about you and just, you know, don't feel as though you need to live up to anybody's expectation. You do not. Whatever you're doing right now is good enough. You should be proud of it. You didn't get here today by accident. You came on a journey to be here. If you look back two years, three years, four years, five years, you have made progress. You should be proud of that. Don't feel as though because somebody on social media is doing X, Y, Z, that is unverifiable, by the way, that you have to feel inadequate. No. You are where you are meant to be and you should take pride in it. One of the big things that I always have to do with everything that is happening now with the podcast and YouTube and everything that's happened over the last 18 months from redundancy to hitting, you know, what a million views on YouTube in the next month, month and a half or so. And, you know, collectively across all of the platform in the last 18 months, we'll be hitting about 1.5 million people in views and downloads across this podcast across YouTube and across Instagram, 1.5 million in 18 months. And whilst I'm quite ambitious, I want to do more. I want to be bigger. I want to be doing more TV, media and amplify my voice. I have to take a step back every day and just take a look back. 18 months ago, I had no idea I was going to be here. I had no idea things were going to be this great. It was a huge risk and I'm thankful for the progress that I've made. 10 years ago, if someone said to me that I would be uh, an executive in a Fortune 100 company, fast forward to today, 
be in a position where I've earned six figures for a good number of years and I now have my own business, which is thriving, I would have told them no way. So I'm grateful for where I'm at. And I think this is a life lesson. This is a moment where, particularly because social media is the way it is, we all need to take a step back every day and look back at where we've come from and be appreciative of it. I believe that once we do that, all of this noise, all of this gunk and bile, all of this nonsense that we're seeing on social media, which is designed to influence our mind mindset and the way we feel about ourselves in terms of we should be doing more, it tries to introduce this feeling of in, inadequacy, all of those things start to fall away. So there it is, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. If it resonates with you, let me know. I hope that it did. Look, it's Monday. I'm hoping that we are celebrating today. England, champions of Europe. How amazing would that be? Enjoy your week, whatever you're doing. I appreciate you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, be sure to check out other episodes and share with the people closest to you. New to investing? Check out Peter's course for first-time investors designed to give you the foundation you need. If you prefer one-on-one coaching, book a complimentary discovery with the man himself. All links in the show notes.